the Psalms and your soul in Psalm 46. I'm not a prophet, but I know you want to be more faithful in prayer. Often by more faithful in prayer, we mean that we want to pray more. But what if part of the reason we don't pray that much is because we don't pray that well? And I don't mean with big or eloquent words. The Lord isn't looking for big or eloquent words from us in prayer. But meaningful and attentive words that we're just actually not real good at prayer. We don't have a handle on what it is. And uh, our muscles for going about it aren't that strong. And so maybe that's why we aren't as faithful as we would want to be in prayer. So maybe, maybe one way to, to pray more, instinctively to pray more, is to get better at praying well. Well, please know that you are not alone if you struggle with praying. As one person said, quote, if I try to pray for people or events, without having the word in front of me guiding my prayers, then several negative things happen. One is that I tend to be very repetitive. Raise your hand if you find that you tend to be repetitive in prayer, okay? I just pray the same things all the time. Another negative thing is that my mind tends to wander. Raise your hand if your mind tends to wander in prayer, okay? So all kinds of things your mind might be on. The temperature of the room, what you have to do next that your phone just buzzed you and who and what that might be all about. Well, who said that quote I just read? Maybe a new Christian who's just learning how to pray, of course. It would be repetitive. Of course, she would wander in her mind. Maybe a veteran Christian who hasn't devoted nearly enough time to prayer. Shame on that veteran Christian. No, it's actually veteran Christian veteran pastor and prayer John Piper who has preached and written no small amount on the subject of prayer himself says that apart from having scripture as a guide that his prayers are often repetitive and his mind tends to wander. So on the one hand that should defeat you like you're not going to get better at it except if you heed this advice that he's giving. If praying can be difficult, you're in good company, but that doesn't mean you should be without words or that your mind should wander. For you are not alone, but neither are we without help to pray well. Behold, God gave you a book, a whole book in the Bible to assist you in praying to him. The Psalms. And if it feels like cheating, like if you use the Psalms for your prayers, your prayers don't count as much, go ahead and tell that to God's people throughout the ages. Go ahead and tell that to Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of glory, who in his human life used the Psalms as his prayer book. Maybe this image will help you. It's like exercise. If you do P90X and you watch a video to lead you in exercise, no one should think that you are not exercising. Now you're not exercising if the video is just rolling and you're not attentive or giving yourself to it. But you are exercising if you are taking the lead of your P90X DVD. Here's another image, cooking. There's nothing wrong with recipes, people. Me alone in a kitchen with a thousand ingredients is useless if I don't have someone to tell me what to put in what order, in what thing, at what temperature. 
I'm using an ancient recipe for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich uh, these days. And I use peanut butter and I use jelly and then I use bread on both sides. And I'm eating it just the same. And uh, I'm not feeling bad about other people having gone before me with that ingenious recipe. So the Lord gives us, if you will, a recipe book for prayer. And he says, take and eat. So let's not neglect it. It may be that it's never occurred to you to use the Psalms for help in prayer, or it may be that you've kind of felt like it wasn't as authentic, but I assure you, it doesn't have to be that way. So this is the last leg of our morning, and in this third session, we'll focus our attention on the matter of the heart and how the Psalms work and how we can employ them for work on our souls. In the first half of our time, we'll take a look at how to use them personally, daily, and skillfully. In the second half, we'll pick up Psalm 46 and ruminate in it for a bit. We've spent some time in some technical categories and learning. All that's very helpful. I think Ryan's illustration at the head of informing our reflexes and strengthening our muscles is just right. Almost like anything that you would do, the more that you do it, the better acquainted you are with tools for it, the more instinctive these things are. Let's start by talking about how to use the Psalms personally. How to use them personally. Two questions will help us think about how to use them personally. First, what do we do with the Psalms? So what do we do with the Psalms? Let me put that question to you. What do we do with them as God's people? We read them, okay? So... So you read the psalm, that's a good answer. Other things? You reflect on them, okay. We sing the psalms. You can study the psalms like we're doing so today. All of that's good. I'm gonna give you four M's to answer the question. First, we meditate on them. This isn't a real precise way to do a word study, but if you were to search your Bible for the word meditate, you'd get about 20 answers, and you'd have one in Luke, and one in Joshua, one in Genesis. Uh, You'd have the rest of them in the Psalms. The Psalms actually talk quite a bit about meditation. It's a word that can be misunderstood, meditation in our day. New Age thinking maybe would say that we empty our minds so we can achieve some kind of higher or alternate plane of consciousness but listen to a few of these psalms in the way that the psalmist uses the language of meditation his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night so he meditates on the word when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night meditate on the Lord the person of the Lord I will ponder your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Meditate on what God has done. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. And so we, we meditate on the things that God has guaranteed to us. And even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. We meditate when we're in trouble. Finally, on the glorious splendor of your majesty. This is Psalm 145. It's the splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. 
I will meditate. So med- meditate, meditation is not an emptying of the mind for some alternate or higher state of consciousness, but a filling of the mind and therefore our consciousness with the Lord and with his word and with his works. There's no substitute for that except lingering, reflective time with his word. And the Psalms are given to us in part for that. You can think of meditation like long exposure. I'm not a, an amazing photographer. I'm an amateur photographer with some gear that can be fun if you fiddle with it long enough. And me and a couple guys uh, went out into the middle of New Mexico and the sky is real dark uh, to see the Milky Way. And you leave your shutter open for however many seconds, I think 30. And the picture, you can see things that you can't see with your eyes with a long exposure image. You can see the Milky Way, see the stars streaking across the sky. You can see stars you can't see with your eyes. So as you stare at the word and as you reflect with the, on the word and it takes time to do that, it burns itself into your soul. Meditation, there's no substitute for meditation. So if you feel like you're reading the word and you're not getting anything out of it, it might be that you just read it. Well, don't just read it. Um, I'd have to do a, a search to see how often the Bible just talks about reading the word. <laughs> it talks about meditating on the word. So we meditate on the Psalms. Secondly, we memorize them. They themselves were memorized by the Hebrews. If you want something close by, you get it close by. Nothing is closer than your own mind. And this is one thing that you can do in the course of meditating suggestion would be to take a psalm and print it out, mark it up, read it over and over and over again. Have it in your pocket. Have it on your dash on your red light. Uh, read it. Ruminate on it. And then read it over and over and then read it less and less, but read it out loud without the help of what you've, you've printed. There are a variety of helps out there for scripture memorization. You can memorize the psalms. Make melody with them. They were themselves sung. Uh, One thing that I appreciate about Drew's ministry here is his care to be biblical, which has worked itself out in the writing of songs, which are psalms. There are two albums that have been put out around here over the last few years called Psalterium 1 and 2. You can get them at the book nook. And they take psalms and put them to music, messing with the words only for... um, only for their singability. These are trans- psalms we have are translations, of course. Uh, are they, what's it called, Drew? A versify? Is that what you say you've done? A versify them. But they're largely, largely in language and in idea and in structure. The psalms that have been put to song around here are largely the psalms uh, from the Bible. And that's why the songs themselves are Psalm 119 or Psalm 1. It's the name of them. There are others out who are, there who have done this. In any case, we sing the psalms and don't miss it when we're doing that on a Sunday morning because we do. And then we minister with the psalms. These psalms were, after all, written down for use by other people and we can use them in ministry to others. As you work through the psalms, note psalms for different purposes. Confession, Psalm 51, 32. Psalms of comfort. Psalms for perseverance and under persecution. All kinds of psalms. Remember, these are not 
encouraging for those who don't know Christ. Remember that you have to know the God the Psalms are written to for the Psalms themselves to be comforting. I can remember making, a, may have shared this story before with you, making a visit to a relative in the hospital and years ago and I called a friend, quick, I need some help. I'm headed into, his first question was, well, is she a believer? <laughs> it's like, it's the best first question. Well, there's no comfort in scripture if you're not a believer. So agenda number one with my relative is to speak to them about the cross and about sin and about death and the hospital bed is a great place to be confronted with your mortality. But the Psalms are only hopeful as they assume you're right with the Lord of life. So we can meditate on them, memorize them, make melody with them, and minister with them. Jesus did, the New Testament apostles and those who wrote scripture did. That's the first question we'd want to answer is what do we do with the Psalms? Just to collect some answers to that question. Here's another one. Uh, what do the Psalms do with us? What do they do with us? Well, here are a couple answers to that question. As poems, they help us to feel. They help us to feel, as we've already heard, lament, joy. They help facilitate our emotional life. They give language to and draw uh, up from the well of our soul's emotions. Your souls need arguments, we need stories, they also need poetry. It's what poetry as a genre is intended best to do. You don't type poetry into an HTML field when you're building a website. You type code. Well, the soul needs more than data. It needs poetry. Sometimes we need help to feel. Psalms can condition our emotions with the truth and they can carry our emotions as we sing and speak that truth. Or another way to put it is the Psalms help shape what we feel and they help us sing what we feel. Here's another answer. As songs for worship, they help our hearts to respond to our circumstances and to the Lord. Lament to what is truly lamentable. They help us to acknowledge and rightly and properly face the evil that's in the world with the truth of God's word and to lament what's lamentable and to rejoice in what is truly wonderful, namely the Lord. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis on praise. So much of the Psalms are ordered to praise and the Psalm book itself ends and leads to praise of God. Praise is a word we might hear a lot and not think on often enough. Here's C.S. Lewis. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. 
So in as much as praise is the overflow of joy in a thing, praise to God, which the Psalms lead us in, is the overflow of joy in the Lord. And the Psalms actually get us there. Psalms are songs for the soul. All of the Bible is for the soul, of course, but the Psalms are for our soul in a unique way, a unique to every other part of Scripture. Think of this, if the soul is an instrument, then the Psalms are like a piece, pieces of music. To tease this imagery out a bit, if you were to learn violin and take lessons, um, but never have a piece to play, well, you might be okay at the violin. You'll always only be okay. But when you have played some of the best pieces, you will be all the better. Each psalm is like a piece of music that you play. And as you engage the psalms, you train your heart to talk to God. Here's another answer. As a collection, they help us to hope. They help us to hope. So as poetry, they help us to feel. As songs for worship, they help us to respond to God properly and the circumstances properly. And as a collection, they help us to hope. Psalms 1 and 2 lead us in delighting in the law of the Lord as we hope in our Messiah who will come, who himself delights in the law of the Lord perfectly. And the Psalms end with five of praise, new creation, in other words, where it's all leading, where it's all supposed to end. The Psalms as a collection help us to hope. They help us to long for salvation well. And in doing so, they help us to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, our heart, our strength, and our mind as we wait for that time. And so the force of the Psalms as a book, all 150, is greater than even the sum of every individual Psalm because they're put together in such a way as to draw the heart into heaven, into the Lord. Here's the finest point I can make on this. The Psalms are God's ordained way of helping his people pray to him and in praying to him to know him. Through, we should add, the Messiah whom he provides. So that's a bit about using the Psalms personally. Let's talk about using them daily now. You might be saying, this is great, I need to use the Psalms, but where do I start? There are 150. If there were 150 days in the year, this might be easy, you use one a day. Uh, but there's 365, a system is helpful. We almost need a plan for most things in life. Sometimes our plans are specific and step-by-step step if you're building something. Lots of our plans that we make, though, are rhythms and habits and patterns. And this is what I'm gonna suggest for you. is a rhythm for engaging the Psalms. Who here is taking KCKC with me? Yeah? Let's say maybe four out of five times I teach the class I, I use this method uh, to open the class up where we read and pray a psalm together at the head of each of the eight times that we meet in that class. Here's how it works. It's a way to meditate on a psalm per day. You look at the date on the calendar. So what's today's date? The 20th, right? Uh, then you go to the 20th psalm and then in the space of about 30 seconds, you add 30 and add 30 and add 30 and add 30. So you got five psalms to pick from. Pick one and hang out on that. Over time, you'll get yourself across the book of psalms. You look there into the psalms of the day I collected for you, day one through 31. You can just do the math yourself or you can keep a little something like this in your Bible. 
There's a helpful book by Don Whitney that might be by my seat or in my office, sorry. It's called How to Pray the Bible. It's called Praying the Bible. We have it at the book nook and he's got a chapter on praying the Psalms where he has this little chart. Super helpful. I picked this up about 10 years ago and have roughly done this since. I love the Psalms. and I love this way of staying in the Psalms. So I would commend it to you. When the day starts, grab the date, grab that Psalm, add 30 a couple times until maybe you find one you want to hang out in. Uh, and it can be arbitrary. It can just pique your interest. That's okay. The Psalms are helping you speak to God. And sometimes one may particularly resonate with where you're at in the moment. Here's something that I'll do uh, as well. Um, let's see. Can't really see it, but my lock screen on my phone, see that? It, it, looks, like a, it looks like a mess, right? Well, your lock screen, you, you hit your phone all the time to look down and check the time, right? And there's usually a picture of some kind of planet or something beautiful like that, or flower, whatever. Um, well, I'll pull up ESV, there's an ESV app, and then I'll highlight a, a verse in that psalm. I'll highlight one verse in that psalm, make it blue, take a screenshot, it takes me about 30 seconds to do this. Take a screenshot, make it the lock screen. So every time I hit my lock screen, boom, I've got at least part of the psalm. You can't fit a whole psalm on your screen like that, but you can at least grab a verse and stick that in your mouth like a lozenge through the day. That makes sense? Figure out how you want to do it. This, this uh, psalm a day plan is very helpful. It has been to me and to others. And there are a variety of ways you can be in the psalm in a day and keep a psalm in front of you throughout the day. You'll find yourself ministering to yourself with it. Uh, and you'll find yourself better able to minister with the psalms, even the one you've used that day, to others. And it can inform your prayers as you go throughout the day. Well, as you read the Psalms, you don't want to read them like you would read just anything because they aren't just anything, they're poems. And so we want to read them skillfully. We want to read them skillfully. And reading them skillfully is sort of like reading anything skillfully. It's like riding a bike. My kids are learning that some things are hard. Shay's learning how to ride a bike now, probably a little late. But, uh, you know, three minutes into the thing, if she's not able to do it, she just feels completely defeated. So we need some perspective. Uh, if she keeps doing it, she'll get a little bit better at it. We'll keep working on it. Riding a bike is a skill that can be learned. It's like watching football. I don't understand football. I've never been taught football. If you taught me the rules of football, I'd forget them right away. It's going to take some work. I think I'd like to enjoy watching football, uh, but I'm just not there. Uh, there are other sports that I've got down, kind of. Well, as you acquaint yourself with the rules of the game you no longer need to rehearse a list of the rules in your mind. They come to mind. Or like driving, a first driving lesson. I remember sitting in the front seat and the driver's ed guy right to my right uh, said, go. And I was paralyzed for wanting to, to do it perfectly. I, I remember seeing my parents start a car a hundred times, but I, I did, was I supposed to, was it gonna blow up if I did it wrong? I didn't know. So don't be paralyzed in coming to the Psalms. Okay, you'll figure it out. Stick the key in the ignition and just turn um, and, and get going. And over time, like driving, like a lot of things, it will become easier and more natural. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you eight to-dos. 
that are in some ways a summary of a lot of what you've heard already. I, don't, I actually don't know if any one of my points here is original to this talk. And that's by design. This last talk is meant to pull things together, simplify, and then sort of give them back to you in a way that you could write in the margin of your, of your Bible. In fact, the original header for this section was summarizing our tools. Summarizing spelled with a P-S. Psalms, you know. So, but since I changed the title, but I liked that original creative title, I thought I would just tell it to you. Anyhow, summarizing our tools, eight things you need to do when you're reading a psalm, and I'll have a little picture for you for each. Uh, first, remember the plan of God. Here's a picture for that one. Whole Bible's going somewhere. Remember the plan of God. Ask, where is the book of Psalms in the pl God's plan of redemption? Maybe it's obvious it's before the cross, but don't forget, don't forget that the writers were hoping in the promise of a Messiah and a Savior who had not yet come, you live on the other side. You read the Psalms as a Christian reader, and yet you also read the Psalms as one looking forward to the consummation of God's promises. You, like the original readers, have great promises from God and great grounds for believing them, and yet you live surrounded by evil and wickedness and even trouble in your own heart. And so you need the Psalms, even though you hear them a bit differently and with a fuller context. Remember the plan of God as you read the Psalms. Second, note the position. How about that? Five, or five books. Note the position. Um, don't overthink this. Work on the Psalm in front of you. But take note about where it sits in the book of Psalms. Um, and take note if there's a collection that it's a part of. If you're picking that up over time, Ron, Ron gave some great advice. Read through the Psalms, but over time you'll start to notice the headers and some of these things fit together. And uh, I'll show you how Psalm 46 is a part of a larger collection, even a smaller collection um, within the second book. Um, so note the position. I say note because uh, I want you to take it note it, but not to take it too seriously. You could become paralyzed by where it fits. And and sort of miss the words right there in the psalm. Uh, feel the pivots. Feel the pivots. Ask, what changes do, you, do I notice in this psalm? Changes in kind or, of, of, of psalm, in subject, object, topic, voice. Maybe there's a quote. Pay attention to the changes. Uh, discern the parts. How about that? Parts. Maybe the worst drawing of the collection, but it'll be good enough. And this can be more helpful than it seems as you, as you observe stanzas and strophes and, and, and as your Bible helps you with those little spaces between sets of verses to see that there is a division of subject matter or a change and a pivot in the, uh, in the material. Here the parallels parallelism, right? What lines are parallel and how do they relate? There are a variety of kinds of parallels. I looked at Ron two days ago and I said, Ron, I'm going to tell them that I usually don't remember the kinds of parallelism. Is that okay with you? He goes, yes, we all agreed. We don't usually remember the variety of the various kinds of parallelism there are, there, there are out there. Um, so the most important thing to remember is that there are lines that relate to one another. And that's how, that's how Hebrew poetry is going to work. Almost always they're coming in pairs. 
And the second one is clarifying the first, expanding on the first, climaxing. Um, is opposite, it's a variety of ways that they can relate, but you can intuit that even just as you, as you look. See the pictures. Picture of a sun here. See the pictures? What images does the author employ? This is the one you could do first if you want. These really aren't to be done in any order. Don't miss the pictures. Um, this is not an argument, though arguments are made in the Psalms. This is art in a way. There's beauty here, and the pictures are used to get at your soul. So what are the pictures, what are the pictures being used, and what are the pictures doing? How are they functioning? How, how is your imagination to be activated? Make sure that your imagination is live and on when you're reading the Psalms. Uh, sense the pitch. Here's a note. What is the emotional shape of the song? Psalm as a whole, and then how does the emotional um, curve move throughout the psalm. If you were to read the lyrics to a breakup song, it would need to make a difference whether the author was glad to have broken up or sad to have broken up. There are some songs that are good written songs, and there are some songs that are, I want to end my life songs, breakup songs. But it matters how you'll hear. So as you read the psalms, listen for the feel and the tone the pitch, I'm calling it, of the psalm. Feel its emotional shape. And then embrace its purpose. Here's a target. Embrace its purpose. So why do we have the book of Psalms? It's not for beauty. It's not for aesthetic beauty or poetry. It's not for information. We have the Psalms because we have souls and our souls know trouble in this world and our souls need hope for the next and our souls need hope and a Messiah, a king, in the Lord. We're human beings, that's another way to say it, and not machines. And we need more than words that are true to apprehend and express ourselves to God. We need words that are beautiful. We need more than words that teach us something. We need words that take us somewhere. And that's what poetry, and that's what the Psalms do. They were written for a reason, we don't read them well, and we don't honor the Lord in our reading unless we read them in keeping with their purpose. And so as you read a particular psalm, do be asking yourself in the back of your mind, why was this psalm given to me? What is this psalm trying to do in the reader? What is God, the Lord, trying to get done in me? How is he serving me, ministering to me through this psalm? Okay, so that's eight to-dos. Let's go to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I preached on this psalm three or four years ago, so maybe that'd be a nice way to end your, your weekend uh, in the psalms here and with this study. We're gonna end with Psalm 46 and do some work in it. But then the, a finished product could be that sermon if you were to listen to that in the next few days, weeks, or months. Um, it's there. I'd even do it slightly different based on my work and structure now, but uh, the sermon works. I stand behind it. Let's read Psalm 46 together. To the choir master, the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth song, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God in the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now what do we get from the very first line? Verse zero, which is a part of the psalm, which is a part of scripture, really its original title for this psalm. What do we get from that text in caps at the top? Eh, a little, little louder. Sorry, I got all this AC over me. Ten of you answered, and, uh, but just none of you loud enough. What do we got? It's a, okay, it's a psalm. It's a song. Good. Okay, it's a song. Sons of Korah. It's a part of a collection. Runs from 42 through 49. They'll all have a little uh, script at the top along these lines. You'll notice that as you read through the Psalms, you've got a collection here. They all maybe hang together. Sons of Korah, you're going to need a study Bible for that. Don't worry about chasing it down when you're reading this in the morning and, and drinking in God's word. But when you want to, go, go try to figure out what this might, might be. The Sons of Korah was a Levitical group of singers at the temple. There were singers who sang God's praises and who led God's people in singing God's praises. So this is a song that God's people would have sung together. Um, structure, any, any, any observations on the parts of the psalm and how it's divided? Three strophes, how would you break it up? Yeah. And you might have uh, some hints from your, your Bible and how it's printed. Um, I'm not, Ron, is it an interpretive decision on the part of the translator to provide the little break between strophes? I believe that it is, yes, okay. So you're getting help, sort of like your header over a chapter from the translator uh, or the publisher of the Bible when you have little breaks. But where might you have textual clues, actual indications in the, in the psalm that you've got breaks there? Anyone? The word Selah? Yeah, this one's kind of easy. Uh, pretend Selah wasn't there. Any other hints? What was that? A period? Oh, okay. Yeah, that can help. End of a phrase. Uh, Ron? It was pretty incredible, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, are there any repeated lines here that might give indication of the end of a... Yeah, so. 
So look at verse 7 and verse 11. You've got the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, ending a, ending a strophe. And then you'll, you'll notice there's a, there's a turn in material and subject. You, you stare at this thing long enough and you'll start to see divisions. You read it once through and it'll feel like a wall of words. It feels like a wall of words to me when I read a psalm for the first time. You stare at it long enough, long exposure, and you can start to see how the thing is broken down. You can hear. I remember where this thing sits. It's in the second book, so... Uh, David's uh, king, but there's difficulty surrounded by enemies, and yet remember that the Psalter is moving toward hope, and you have a hint in here. Uh, note about this psalm, if you were to read this psalm, and then Psalm 47, and then 48, they all are about uh, God's city, Zion, Jerusalem, and there's a movement from one to another. It appears, just appears, that these three were meant to go together, in this psalm, God comes down to rescue and save. And Psalm 47 is like a victory celebration and God goes up and ascends his throne. And then Psalm 48 is like a, a meditation on the perfection of God's city and his people. One author said you have um, incarnation, ascension, and new creation or Christ's return. Uh, that may feel a little forced, but those are, that's just actually a pattern in the Bible of how God works. He saves, he ascends, and he, he comes to complete. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I should tell you that. We don't know, but it's a musical marker. It probably means rest. Ron might have something more to say about that. It's going to help break up. You're gonna, it's going to help you see how a psalm is broken up in the mind of the author, and it, it gave some kind of mu it was a musical notation of some kind. Okay, let's look at um, sets of verses, strophes now. So we'll look at one through three. I'll hold this up here. And I, I want you to, to do this for me. Articulate just observations. Take those eight things, the, the various tools we've gotten, and just push some observations out verbally, but, but, but be loud enough so we can, we can hear you. What are you seeing in verses one through three? Yeah, there's a lot of parallelism here. And there's a building kind of parallelism. Maybe you could call it climactic. So verse one, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Refuge and strength, a refuge, a kind of image. Think of uh, taking refuge, there's safety as you hide in a refuge. God is a refuge. He's also our strength. He provides us with the strength that secures us in trouble. A very present help in trouble clarifies, I'll call it 1A one, one and 1B one there. That's how I'll refer to those. A present help. He's helping now. He's yep. So he starts grabbing imagery. So I had a little picture of a sun for pictures, but he's got a picture of mountains here moving into the heart of the sea. Mountains and the sea, those are a little bit different, aren't they? Mountains are passively strong. They sit there, they tower, and they do not move. The sea is actively strong, chaotic, even a sign of evil in the ancient 
Near East. And this is a worst case scenario that he's describing. Pick your sad thing that could happen or has happened or is happening to you and it is no doubt horrifying. It does not get worse than the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea. And so he's grabbing images to try to convey the extent to which God is present and a help to us. The extent of the strength and the refuge that he is to us. As waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble and it's swelling. The upheaval of the entire creation the undoing of everything God has made, and yet God has not moved. He is a refuge and a strength. Wow, is this hard to believe looking around? Isn't this hard to believe unless God's word is true, unless we have every reason to believe it? And so we cling to his promises and to his word. By way of summary, God is a help in the worst of all imaginable trouble. Therefore, we will not fear any trouble. Um, let's go to the next set of verses here. Four through seven. Now what do you notice already? Calm? Glad you, yeah, was, I gave you a really bad question to leave, but you knew where I was going. There is a change here. This is a different set of images. A river and the city of God, which is on a mountain. A very different kind of water, a very different kind of mountain. Other observations that you're making as you're looking at verses four through seven? The city is stable and strong. God's a refuge and strength, and this city is not moving. God is a very present help in trouble. God is in the midst of this city and therefore the city is not moved. So you're starting to see with different language and imagery a recurring theme. Other observations? Okay. God will help her when morning dawns. Interesting, you need a study Bible to show this to you as well. When morning dawns is the exact phrase used uh, in the story of the Exodus when Moses closes the water over the Egyptians and his people are victorious and they're safe. If there ever was a moment in the Old Testament story when God demonstrated that he's a refuge and a strength to his people in a pretty cataclysmic situation where death looked certain, it would be the Exodus. When morning dawns, it almost has a Lord of the Rings-like ring to it, doesn't it? God will help her when morning dawns. You have a change here, the, the first three verses, subject matter, natural evil, we could call it. Here you have human evil, nations, rage, kingdoms totter. You could translate that kingdoms fall, so there's like a little cause and effect. The nations are raging and warring against each other, and that has never stopped and won't until Christ comes, and they totter and they fall. The Lord utters his voice, cause and effect, and what happens? The earth melts. One reason Jericho fell was because God made the inhabitants to melt with fear before his people. 
that language of crushing or melting his enemies. And the Lord of hosts is with us. The presence theme, the God of Jacob is our fortress. God of Jacob. Jacob. Covenant with Abraham. You remember God's covenant promises. These psalms come to us in the context of certain promises that are assumed as background for these prayers. Jerusalem, the city of God. The holy habitation would be the temple. So God is not merely interested in his salvation. I shouldn't say even interested in his salvation of saving land, of preparing a place, except for that to be a place for him to enjoy a redeemed people. And so no wonder he moves after speaking of the city of God and of the holy habitation of the Most High, the temple, he starts to speak in verse five of God in the midst of her. Really, this is a psalm about the people of God being secure in the place that God has made for them and prepared for them. And by summary, God's people are safe from every earthly enemy for God is in her midst. And so as the nations surround Israel and rage against the people of God, ultimately God's people are safe because they're his. He's in the midst of her and protects her. And there are Christians in places in the world that need the promise that they are safe if they belong to God and that the nations surround them and threaten their heads. Christians are safe if they belong to their king who is Christ. There is suffering, but it ends in glory. All right, let's go to the next strophe. Okay, verses eight through 11. Notice another change here. How would you express it? What's the change in this strophe that happens? Come, this is a command now. Come and behold the works of the Lord. This is not like previous sections, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease, breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. Read the book of Joshua and you'll have background for how God defeats the enemies of Israel. And you have another change in verse 10. You have a quote from God himself. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You're familiar with that, aren't you? We've heard that verse. It's not, um, it wouldn't be wrong to read that verse and to be still. But it's actually a call to entrust yourself to the one in the midst of all of this chaos and movement, to entrust yourself to the one who's got it all. So when you get a call and your baby was in a car wreck, when you get a call and your spouse is in the hospital, when you get a call from the doctor and you have cancer, terminal cancer, be still and know that I am God. You will pass through the valley of the shadow of death, even death itself, and come out untouched if you're safe in Christ. This is the hope of Christianity. This is the promise of the Bible. We pass through the darkest of times. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. And yet, the promise of the psalm and of the Bible is not that the mountains aren't moved into the heart of the sea. It's that we're safe when the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. 
Impossible? Yes, for you, but not if you're one with the Lord in salvation. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What God began, he will finish. The promise that he made to Abraham, he will complete. And his promises to you in the gospel are true and unmoving. They are as true and fixed as the earth is raging and wheeling around us. And the best place to look to find the juxtaposition, the intersection of chaos and raging nations and mountains moving into the heart of the sea and perfect trust and perfect fulfillment would be where? The cross. And so we have Jesus on the cross trusting his father perfectly while the nations rage against God's anointed, his Messiah, his Savior. And so while the nations, the wicked of the world, who are plotting against the Lord and his ways, give all that they have unto the destruction of God's aims, God is in that very moment providing for the salvation of his people. And so Jesus is raised from the grave, and Jesus ascends, and Jesus will return. Before the day is out, be sure to read Psalm 47 in Psalm 48. So let me wrap this up with a few questions. And this might be what's happening in the study as we prepare to preach and trying to get this thing simple, trying to understand the logic of the psalm so to get it across in a sermon. You can do this, of course, in your own study. I might ask the question, what's the heart of the matter that this psalm is written to address? What's the heart of the matter? The problem of fear. The world's a frightening place. Nature and the nations are frightening. All kinds of things that can go wrong. All kinds of horrifying things that can happen. How can we face the worst that life can bring? Another question, how does the author address that fear? Or put another way, how can the author say, we will not fear? And of course, we have our own answers, don't we? We collect things and amass things. Money, building, properties, skills with which to uh, secure jobs. All of that is appropriate for the Christian for all kinds of good reasons, not for keeping ourselves safe before the Lord, not for keeping ourselves safe in worst case scenarios, not for keeping ourselves utterly and finally secure. But the Lord's presence, the Lord's presence is the answer to fear. The Lord's presence is greater and stronger and the strongest, most terrifying threats. He promises. He's a very present help in trouble. The Lord is with us. He's a fortress for us. He is in the midst of his people. To lean even on a little of anything else is silliness, for everything else will crumble. So entrust yourself to the Lord wholly. And by his spirit in the Christian, he is ever present with you. Here's another question. How does the Lord's presence help us in the midst of such fearsome trouble? I could explain some things, but what we really need is for the Lord to help us to really believe and to feel his protection and to know his protection by his spirit. To have the assurance of the hope that is ours and to know the hope that is ours in the gospel. So here's how we're going to end. I'm going to pray through Psalm 46. That's a great way to end. 
a session like this and a morning like this. Before I do, let me read a quote from John Piper to cap off what I'd read from him earlier. For me, it's absolutely essential that my prayers be guided by, saturated by, and sustained and controlled by the word of God. I've said to people, you can pray all day if, if you pray the Bible. Some people wonder how they can pray longer than five minutes because they would lose things to pray for. I can relate with that. But I say that if you open the Bible, start reading it, and pause at every verse and turn it into a prayer, then you can pray all day that way. And so let's close with Psalm 46 in prayer. Dear great God and Father in heaven, you are a refuge and a strength to us. You are so many things. You are holy. You are eternal. You are great, you are the creator, and you are wonderfully, personally, a refuge and a strength for us, a very present help in trouble here among us now. And Father, there are untold tragedies that have struck the lives of the people in our church, and Christians around the world are suffering in a variety of ways at the moment, and yet, as your word says, even though the mountains actually be moved, could they be into the heart of the sea, we would be safe. You are a present help in that kind of trouble. And as your people, we are your treasured possession. We are your city. We are your holy habitation. And you are in the midst of us. And so whatever happens to us, whatever threats come before us, whatever suffering that we know, you're in the midst of us and we cannot be moved. Father, as we look around the world and we see the nations raging, we know that they're not merely raging uh, out of habit. They're not merely raging for more property or more authority or more uh, greater platform merely out of pride, but, but out of pride against you, out of an assault against you, out of a competition with you. And we know that the nations ultimately rage against your glory and your ways and your Messiah Christ. And this is why the church throughout the ages is attempted to have been stamped out. And yet here we are, Father, believing and preaching and praying and singing and loving the gospel. And so we thank you that your church, your people cannot be moved because you are in the midst of her. Help us to remember that when the nations rage. Help us to remember the strength of your voice that melts the earth, that created the world and called us into new life and will bring everything to completion. Father, you are our fortress. You are with us and we trust you. And Father, we behold your works and we remember your works, your many mighty works and especially your work uh, in Christ Jesus on the cross for us. What an amazing event and the resurrection to follow and we look forward to the work of Christ's return to come. These works greater than anything in the Old Testament that we read about which are profound and amazing and impossible. The sun being stilled, hail thrown at enemies, the seas crashing in over the Egyptians after Israel walked on dry land. Nothing of that touches. It only patterns the gospel and the salvation you've brought to us. You will make wars to cease and you will break the bow and you will burn the chariots 
in the new creation, there will be no fighting instruments because there will be no sin or human pride. As we come to the end of this psalm, as we pray, Father, help our hearts to trust in you and to rest in the certain promise that you will be exalted among the nations and that you will be exalted in all the earth. Even now as we pray this, we consider that we are those who are from among the nations and we're praising and exalting you. And so the fulfillment of this verse is even found among us this morning here as we've met. You are with us. You are the Lord of hosts. You are the God of Jacob who makes great promises and keeps them. You're our fortress. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.